hello, and welcome to your easy listening Blizzard Watch podcast. Ah, sorry, uh, Matt Brossi here, host of the show. I couldn't get my voice to go up to real volume for a second there. You ever like be so tired, you just can't get the voice to come out? So yes. that's what that was. Yes. Um, but yeah, we're doing a, po- a podcast here. It's the Blizzard Watch podcast. I've got my my indubitable cohorts, cohorts uh, Liz Harper and Joe Perez with me. We're going to get on board some kind of sailing ship and explore adventure i i know we're not we're gonna do a podcast why am i even trying <laughs> I don't, what's wrong with me today but anyway yeah know, stuff, is sounds ha- good. stuff is happening um i i i'm just gonna do a quick what we've been doing i have been just utterly freaking obsessed with mass effect legendary edition and what it means for mass effect 4 i even wrote a post which hasn't gone live yet i don't know if we'll use it or not but i i, I mean, we will we just you yeah, know, no, I know i'm just it's, saying that it's been a day at this point, it is not currently live, so you can't go look yeah. at it. But, you know, who knows? By the time you hear this recording, it, it may be. It might be live. It should be live. But one of the things that I've been thinking about is, like, what did I like and dislike about Mass Effect? Which is why the first question we got today is one that I saw and was like, ah! and, and threw, threw into the email. I was like, yes, we're going to totally talk about this. Uh, but before we do that, we should talk about those top, those pesky top stories. Um Oh, also, I sh- to not be a rude person, I should say, hey, Liz, hey, Joe, what have you all been up to this week? And I'm going to start with Liz. Uh, I've been brainstorming a lot about my D&D character, because uh, we're starting yeah. a new D&D campaign, which Joe and Matt are DMing. And uh, I really want to play the game. Like, I really yeah. want to get into it, because I'm excited about the character, and that's that's been my headspace lately, a lot of it. And playing Mass Effect, but yeah. D&D's kind of taking over over the last few days yeah because you've, you've played mass effect for a few months now so you're, you're finally uh, yeah yeah well, you're finally at a point where you've your brain feels like okay okay that'll hold me for a week <laughs> <laughs> but yeah D D is fun uh, joe uh been making some plans for the future from doing some streaming content with some friends and some of the uh upcoming watsi releases with which is uh with the magic side of things which i'm really excited about also doing uh, some painting commissions, which I'm always excited to do. Um, I got more army stuff to do, but there's some really cool, very weird looking models, which are always sort of my jam. Uh, so I've just been kind of trying to truck through that when it hasn't been too humid, which is a thing people don't think about. It's like, oh, you live in the winter. The cold must be the problem. It's not the cold. That's the problem here in the winter. It's the humidity. That's always the problem. Uh, see, around, see we, we live in, I live in Alberta. Alberta wants to be a desert really bad. Yeah. So yep. here it would not be a problem. And we are basically a swamp that gets yeah, right winter. Lake, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it makes it, it makes it interesting. So I've been dealing with that. Bogs when, when it's that, you know, when it's up there, it's bogs or, or something like that. The moors, what have you. Yeah. You know what? I think you might be kind of right. I don't remember, but yeah. So that's what I've been doing. So trying to get lots of painting in and also using a uh, brand new airbrush that was an early birthday gift from a mysterious benefactor. I don't know if they want to be named, but um, I like Matt's been having issues with um, his health. I've been having issues with my hands, which is really hard when you are a person that uses your hands for everything. Um, So I found uh, we found an ergonomic solution for it that allows me to actually keep painting. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah, that's what I've been doing. Cool. All right, we're gonna do some some top stories because I mean, have you have you met the show? That's what we do. <laughs> um, but I, I'm gonna I put them in a certain order. But now that I'm looking at them, I want to talk about them in a different order. 
<laughs> so um, the first thing we're going to talk about is this post that Annabelle wrote for us. Uh, I think because most of us were not here today, I was busy trying to keep my cats from not from dying. So mm-hmm. I've been wrangling them all day. Um, but Blizzard is apparently doing a survival game, uh, a la Valheim or The Long Dark. Yeah. yeah. We don't know exactly what it's going to be like. Survival, yeah. there's it's a, a big genre. range there. Yeah, and they, yeah. they haven't given us any details. They just called it a survival game. And I think that is very they, interesting. Well, because they gave us one detail. Done. One hmm. detail. It's a new IP. Well, two, yeah. de- two details. We did. They did say that you'll meet heroes. So there, there's going to be some form of NPC, I would assume. Just throwing it out there. Maybe, maybe it's sandwiches. Who knows? <laughs> but, <laughs> but we do know. Yeah. But, so like, I, I'm actually, since you brought it up, Liz, what? What did you think when you read this? What what did, what came to mind? What do you like? Was your reaction as confused as mine, or did you are you like already excited about the possibilities? Um, I mean, survival games. I'm kind of I can take them or leave them. I'm not always into them, so it really depends on what it turns out to be. I am a little surprised by the announcement, but I'm also not surprised. It feels like now is kind of the time to start new projects. Blizzard, you know, just as a company, just the people inside Blizzard, Blizzard needs a shot in the arm right now. They mm-hmm. need something that says, we're still here. We're, we're still making great games. Like, we've seen a lot of developers departing Blizzard, a lot of names that we're familiar with. And that's been, you know, kind of a, it's been a downer for us, people observing the company from the outside. And I imagine it's a lot worse if you're inside the company and you're trying to make it a better place. Because you see all of your friends walking away, and you can understand why. I'm sure there are plenty of reasons to walk away from Blizzard right now, but it's got to be just a big drop to morale. And there are tons of job listings at Blizzard right now that, you know, I've looked at them sometimes and been like, if it were two years ago, I might have jumped on some of these job openings because this is really cool. You could work for such a cool game company. And now I'm like, "Uh, Blizzard, really? I don't know about that. And um, I just, I feel like Blizzard really needed a shot in the arm. They needed something exciting. They needed something positive, something good that not only we on the outside can get excited about, but all the people inside, yeah, all the people inside Blizzard can be like, okay, we're doing something cool. We're going to recruit all these good people and make a cool new game. And I think that's, that's important for the company, both inside and outside. So I'm not surprised that they've made like some kind of kind of a big dramatic move because they don't announce new IPs every day. Nope. That's very true. Joe, you have any reaction to it? A little bit. Um, so I can I can make some probably educated guesses, uh, probably similar to some other folks. Like, I don't think this is going to be a single player experience because it doesn't seem like the way that they would want it to go. I'm curious, though, how much of a service it's going to be versus... Uh, a traditional survival game because when I think survival game, I'm thinking things like Valheim, uh, heck, even Minecraft. Because uh, people forget that Minecraft is a multiplayer survival game, or at least it has the capability of doing so. Uh, is this something that's going to run off of their servers in the back end? Are they going to spin up an infrastructure for this, or is this going to be something that relies on people to install and stand up their own servers? Um, my gut tells me that they're probably going to try to do their own infrastructure for it because Blizzard is generally very up opposed to having third-party servers out there running their code 
but I'm really fascinated to see what's going on about it. Um, I would like to see something between like Fallout 76 and Valheim where there is like that multiplayer element, because to me, survival games are always more fun with friends, but also see if there's a thing like an advancement or questing or overarching thing. Like in Minecraft, you're moving towards killing the Ender Dragon. Uh, in Valheim, you're working towards getting the favor of the, the the gods by going through all of the uh, the different biomes and completing the different tasks and, and feats of strength. Um, you know, I'd like to see if there's something more to it than just survive, um, because there's been a ton of games out there. Like Ark Survival has been out forever, as has Conan Exiles. They're both survival games that have very similar feel to them, uh, but with real no like end goal in mind, unless you create one as a player. I'd like to see them add some of their previous IP experience, like understanding, like having a carrot on a stick, like with Diablo, with, you know, you know, World of Warcraft, heck, even some of the Starcraft stuff, you have a goal that you're trying to reach towards. Like, maybe it's a far distant goal that maybe it involves NPCs. Maybe it involves different biomes. Maybe it involves working together in new and creating creative ways, but I'm intrigued. Uh, This is not what I expected uh, when they, when we knew that they were working on a new IP. Uh, mostly because I kind of expected them to go the roguelike route uh, and sort of cash in on the Hades and uh, and everything else that's been coming out with the the action RPG roguelikes that have been hitting the market at a breakneck pace. Um, so I would have lost that bet. I would have bet on that instead of a survival game. But I'm very interested in it. And it seems like their internal teams, like I'm watching tweets go up from some of the developers, are super excited about it. So that's always good to see, too. So, yeah. Well, one thing I've noticed myself watching Blizzard is that Half of the devs I follow at Blizzard have been talking about survival games of one stripe or another. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like half of them are playing Valheim all the time. Oh, yeah. So I watched, I I watched Devilor play, play Valheim for hours. Yeah. So I, I wasn't super surprised. I was surprised. Like, straight up, I was like, huh? But looking with, with that knowledge in my head, it's not incredibly shocking that they would be would do this, considering how much they've... This is how World of Warcraft even exists. World of Warcraft exists because everybody at Blizzard, like when they weren't making Warcraft 3, was playing EverQuest. Hots exist because when they weren't yeah. playing World of Warcraft or working on the, it, they were playing League of Legends. Yeah, so they try to make games. I mean, look at Overwatch, which is basically just, God, we love Team Fortress 2. Let's make that. So Blizzard has done that before. It's not a shock. Yeah. But at the same time, I was not expecting it. I really don't want this to become their anthem. And I don't think they will. Because mm-hmm. Blizzard has always been better about making different games in different genres, whereas Bioware made one genre of game and just made it really well. And then one day was like, we're going to make a completely different genre of game. And everybody was like, why? And we're like, basically the giant dragon who, who bought our house a while back <laughs> really wants us to do it. And, and we can't really say no. So far, we've been able to put the giant dragon off by like, you know, kind of doing what it wants, but sneaking in the thing we want to do. And and at last, the dragon is wised up to that and is like, no, make the thing I want. And he's a dragon. That's that's so, my only reservation with this, though, too, is like, don't get me wrong. But with like going back to Liz's point with everything that's going on is what kind of like back end discussion was having about this, where like, what is this game going to look like on release? Because it's still being worked on under the Activision banner, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so is it going to be a games of services that's going to try to bleed you dry or is it going like I'm, I'm starting to, that's my only reservation. I'm with you. Like it's, it's one of those weird things. Yeah. Just don't, nag don't at the be, back of my head. Yeah. Don't be an anthem. 
Please don't uh, be an anthem. Yeah, I was watching actually an interesting video, and I I don't know what you guys will think, but I'll, I'll throw it out to both of you. To basically, argued that it was it's ultimately good for Bioware that Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order did well as a single player, no multiplayer, no mm-hmm. live service kind of game, because it gives EA a sense of oh hey, we can still make money doing this. This is actually more profitable to us to make games, you know, single player games that are just story driven. And that that's kind of Bioware's whole deal. So it might actually be, and we've seen some signs that Bioware is getting like more control over what it does. Like apparently they're considering ditching the frostbite engine for unreal engine five. That would be good for everyone concerned. Yeah. I think the frostbite engines experiment has ultimately, I I'm amazed at what they got frostbite to do. Like the fact that they got frostbite to do what they got it to do is really impressive, but it's basically been a huge albatross around their neck every time they've tried to use it. To for for anyone listening who doesn't know what we're talking about, uh, Frostbite was uh, an engine for the Battlefield games, and EA basically kind of gently pushed it on all of their other development studios, and it wasn't designed to do stuff like that, so it caused uh, some hiccups. I believe that th- there was a one of the articles talking about Inquisition was argued that they spent a solid half of their development time coming up with ways to make Frostbite do what they wanted it to do because it was never designed to do any of the things they were trying to do with it. Like Frostbite did not have a built-in system to do dialogue. It didn't have a built-in system to do cinematics. It didn't have any of this stuff. It was an engine for first-person shooters. It did not have anything else. It did not have a really good system for making your dwarf, uh, you know, rogue because you didn't have anything. Not a lot of dwarf rogues in the battlefield. Although, man, there should be. Why they never <laughs> did a Battlefield Dragon Age is beyond my understanding. <laughs> like, no, I'm I'm not kidding. They kept doing these Battlefield games. I was like, why did you not cross-pollinate and do a Battlefield Thetis? And and if I remember correctly, Frostbite's been around since, like, what, the PlayStation 3, Xbox 360 generation? Yes. Yes, yeah. it has been. Because uh, the, the tail end of that corresponds with Frostbite. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 also long in the tooth now, in addition. But so... One of the things we're hearing is that the the new Mass Effect game might be on Unreal 5 because the original Mass Effect games were on Unreal 3. And this isn't saying that there aren't problems with the original Mass Effect games because I'm going to be up front right now, guys. Uh, Whatever you're doing with with your new Blizzard, when you're doing your new survival game, if there's character creation in it, please focus heavily on it. Please. Mm -hmm. Don't don't make a game where there's like only one set of eyes that look good on anybody. (laughs) And and the, you spend three hours trying to make a character, and it looks like Jason Statham fell face first onto a griddle. That's like no, I, I would like my character to not look like that. Thank you. But I think we've talked about this enough and segued into stuff that has <laughs> nothing to do with it enough. So the next thing I'll mention this one's this one's not as big a deal, but uh, Liz reminded me that it's happening. The uh, Hearthstone's it's called the Battlefield Buddies. Is that what it's called? Um, yeah, they just did a big patch that uh, rolled out an improvement to Battlegrounds or a revamp to Battlegrounds that adds buddies to every hero. You have this special minion that's specific to your hero, and uh, that just rolled out for PC. I have not played it yet because I usually play on my tablet, and it is not live on mobile last time I checked. So I haven't checked it out, but it does sound really cool, and it's really going to super change the way Battlegrounds works. Hopefully for the better. Okay. So yeah, we don't have a lot to talk about it. So just an announcement. Uh, Another thing that we can just kind of give a a quick announcement to is that patch 9.2 saw an update 
to the way they're going to unlock flying in Zareth Mortis, which I believe reduces the time it's going to take to like two weeks. Which is awesome. Yeah, you will be able to get flight in Zareth Mortis in two weeks. Just look at the achievement is now, it's basically available for data mine. It's being tested. It's it's on the PTR. And you can just get the achievement and you can be in the air in Zareth Mortis in two weeks. So you'll still do the intro stuff on the ground. You'll still learn, you know, go to Zareth Mortis, do the things you need to do and, and get into that content. But then after a couple of weeks, you'll earn the achievement and you'll be flying. Uh, this time, Joe, first, you, you already said you think it's awesome. So you're, you're on board with this, right? Yeah, I think one of the, the one of the things that I, I always had a gripe with with just wow, whenever we got to new areas that would eventually have flying is how long it takes to get flying. Because I, I'll be honest, I understand they want to like there is this pervasive thought of having this on the ground to enjoy the new content. But I feel and I don't know, I don't have anything to back this up. This is just literally I, I believe this um, with nothing to support it. But I think players are more inclined to fly around and explore than run around on the ground and explore where they might have to die to get back or hearth to get back to some place where they, you know, feel safe or, or whatever the case is. It's really easy to get lost sometimes when you're on the ground and lose track of where you are. So reducing the amount of time it takes to open up flying in Xerath Mortis, which from what we understand is already going to be a little bit of a weird zone in the, maybe in the same vein as the rest of the Shadowlands, but also something all of its own that the sooner you get flying, the sooner you're probably going to explore everything that zone has to offer. So I think it's a good choice personally. Liz. Uh, yeah, everything Joe said, basically. Um, it's interesting because I've heard a lot of people who have complained about how long it's taken to unlock flying in Shadowlands. And I feel like flying really came a lot faster in Shadowlands than usual. And also with Xerath Mortis, usually we do not get flying in these new endgame zones. We didn't in Argus. And, uh, yeah, yeah. You still I mean, can't I fly in Argus. I don't, most, most of these late patch, these added zones, you never get to fly. Ever, ever. And, of course, we still can't fly in the Maw, we can't fly in Corthia, but I think it's great that we're going to be able to fly in Xerath Mortis. That's just such a convenience because, I mean, okay, yes, there are things to explore, and I know Blizzard wants us to wander around on the ground and see all of the little things they've put there, but sometimes, sometimes you just don't want to. Yeah, like, I, I, know, I know for a fact that, like, Rivendreth, I would get lost there. Like I would be on the lower level at the bottom of those cliffs and I couldn't find the elevator back up. And it's like, I need to be like five feet away, but up on the top of that cliff and I can't find the elevator. And I'm just like, okay, screw this. I'm going to hearth and I don't care about this quest. I'm never coming back uh, until I got flying. And then I could just go where I wanted to go and do things. And that was it. Easy. Yeah, I found every hole that existed in Ardenwald. I've fallen through the world so much this expansion before flying <laughs> was a thing. I'm right there with you. I'll be up front. Yeah. Um, I hate flying in World of Warcraft, and I always have. Um, I don't think it should ever have been introduced. But I also think once it was introduced, it should just be there. It should just be you design your MMO around this since you put it in. And the reason I think that is because this constant tension between designing zones that they think are fun to play in and their their continuous antipathy towards the feature that they put in as their major draw selling point for their first expansion. This feature has been in the game pretty much f minus the first two years. It's been in the game ever since Rat BC came out. You gotta start designing zones with it in mind. That's why I actually liked Hyjal for all that it was a mess. 
it was designed with flying in mind. You used flying in this zone. And that's that let them do a lot of up and down. They did the same thing in, in uh, the Vashir zone, but Vashir had its own problems. Like because they did it as swimming, it was a lot harder to see what you were doing. And, and it felt very disorienting. Whereas flying, it's not as bad. I, I don't know. I just, I feel like it's time to just design zones with flying in mind. Like the, this continuous effort to like have your cake and eat it too has led to some zones just feeling really weird and bad. Um, and, and I'm, I think I'm thinking about Thunder Totem here. Yeah. Like the, that back Thunder, in Legion, that Thunder, zone, oh, Thunder, yeah. whatever it was called, like the high mountain, high mountain, high mountain was just not a great zone to play in uh, because you didn't have flight, but the whole place was like up on high things. You were constantly trying to get up. You know, I know I need to get up to the top of this mountain, but I have no idea how to get there. I can't find a path. Oh, we finally got flying. So I'll just fly up there. Oh, yeah, Why did was, you do that? Blizzard? That was so frustrating all the time. Yeah, you were constantly trying to get to places in High Mountain, and you'd ride, 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 and then you'd get to a certain point. And like, oops, we're in, the, we're in the hunt. You, you accidentally rode into the hunter thing, so now you get teleported out. Or uh, you accidentally walked into a den of a bunch of mobs that you can't take by yourself. Well, you're dead now. Go figure yeah, out, go and, eat your body, or figure out another path. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, your body is is up there, and the grave points down here, and so you know, uh, yeah, I guess you're not getting back to it. Um, so yeah, I, I I feel like at this point it's time to just design zones with flying in mind. But that's that's just me. Um, I will though. Like, uh, go ahead. You you can't put the genie back in. They added flying and burning crusade. You cannot undo that choice. Yeah, and exactly. it seems like yeah, it seems like they wanted to, but you cannot undo that choice. It's too late. Yeah, if you'd wanted to do that, what you should have done was made flying something that only worked in BC. And and when you go back to Azeroth, you never get it again. It's just a BC thing. And they might have been able to sell that. People would have been mad because they spent a lot of gold on those flying mounts. But you maybe you could have done it then. When you go into Wrath, no flying. But since they used flying in Wrath, they, that was a big deal. They they even had like all the, the zone Storm Peaks. Flying is a big deal there. No, once you did that, it's over. And at this point, it's been you know 16 years. It, it's time to just accept that flying is part of the game. That's, that's just my time. Uh, but we should probably talk about... The Year of the Tiger, um, the Lunar New Year event in Overwatch. I don't think there's a lot to say about it. There's not as many new skins this time, I think, is the main takeaway. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's two skins. Though they've said they're working on a lot of skins and there are going to be more skins this year than ever. But this event only has two new skins. And that's kind of, yeah. Yeah, considering the, the, the somewhat limbo-esque nature of the, the upcoming Overwatch sequel, I don't know what's going on with Overwatch right now, guys. Uh, straight up, I am confused. I am not sure what's happening, but it does definitely feel like they've they're trying to readjust. Um, they did have a pretty big shakeup last year. Uh, multiple people who were pretty highly placed in the the Overwatch team left, and so there's been a lot of of reshuffling. Um, so yeah, I'm not tremendously surprised, but nevertheless, yeah, the Year of the Tiger Lunar New Year event is in, is now it's live right now, right? Yes, it is. It yeah. went live uh, this afternoon, and it will go on through February. So we got that. And now finally for the thing that is probably going to cause a lot of consternation and, and sadness and confusion and all that good stuff. Uh, Raven Software, which is a, I, I don't know what you call it, a subsidiary, a, a studio? What, what like they're, what, where would you use? They're a team, they're a QA team within the organization. Yeah, but no, Raven itself is a smaller subset of Activision Blizzard. That's the part I'm trying to... Yeah, it's a, I mean, I don't know if you... We'll just call it a subdivision at this point, I think yeah, would be the most accurate. Raven Software is a subdivision of Activision Blizzard, and uh, their QA team went on strike when Activision Blizzard laid off 
several members. Uh, this led to you know people pointing out, you know, you keep talking about record profits and you keep laying people off. You promised these people that they would, you know, they would move to Madison, they would have jobs, and now they've moved to us to a new city, and you just laid them off. That that's especially when you've got all this money, you keep talking about having this is monstrous. So they went on strike, and they've been on strike for like three weeks. They just recently ended the strike because they voted to unionize, and they wanted uh, Activision Blizzard to voluntarily recognize the union. This has not happened as of today, um, I believe. Go ahead. Yes, as of today, they have recognized the union. This happened oh, they shortly, did? shortly after we started the pre-show. Yeah, because okay, they, had, they, so had, they had until 6, 6 p.m. Pacific to, to recognize it, so we were coming right up on the time. Okay, all right. Uh, I thought the thing that Mitch sent said that they didn't. Uh, no, that it... Wait, do I have this backwards? You think you do. Oh, we, okay, yeah, never mind. We will not voluntarily it, recognize Raven Software's union. It, it's, it's a little more complicated than that, but yeah. Yeah, they have not recognized the union. Um, so I don't know where this leaves uh, Raven Software. Uh, we do know that one of the things that Raven did, uh, their their president let uh, set out a message uh, yesterday, I believe, uh, was the tweet that I was looking at from from the writer of the original Polygon piece, saying that she'd gotten an email saying that Raven had reorganized. And this is something I wanted Joe and Liz to talk about because I know that especially Joe is really up on the kind of corporate obfuscation we're talking about. So why don't you talk about what's going on? Uh, so two things real quick. One, just to go back to the the new stuff, the the voluntary recognition of the uh, union is something that is a requirement uh, without a formal vo- vote held by the national, uh, the NLRB, basically. Um, so they have a majority of votes went to the company to get it recognized. The company refuses to recognize it because they weren't able to uh, make an agreement with the CWA. Now they're going to petition the NLRB, which is where this leaves them, to have an official vote in the workplace to officially unionize and hold elections for positions within the union that does not require management's recognition. And then after that vote is done, then management will have to recognize it if the vote passes. So it's a little complicated, but that's exactly what they're they're doing there. But beyond that, what they're trying to do ahead of time is they're reorganizing Raven in an attempt to what can only be can only be called playbook 101 of how do you break up a team. So they're trying to embed the members of the, the, the QA Raven team into other teams. And this means that they're splitting them up as their own unit, or at least attempting to. Uh, the vote with the, the union stuff is going to probably complicate that, which is one of the reasons why they're probably choosing not to recognize it. Uh, but what does that mean for people that don't haven't worked in software development? When a QA person is embedded on a team, that team n- now has that position. It owns that position. And that means that that position can be rebranded. Uh, it can be removed. It can be absorbed into a developer position. And now it's no longer a QA position. Now it has different requirements. Now it has different uh, things that you need to be able to do in order to hold that position. It now becomes more than a contract work, but also they can open that position to pull somebody else in for it as an actual developer and get rid of the people that were uh, you know, working to unionize in the background. It's something I've seen companies do in the past. Hell, I've worked at a company that did this exact thing. And at the end of that, when you start embedding that team off, you're getting rid of their management. You're getting rid of anybody that they report to uh, as far as supervisors or anything like that goes. You're getting rid of their job responsibility. And there you go. So it, I wouldn't be surprised if they can't get themselves unionized and they can't get that vote done in time, which they will probably delay that vote as they can, or at least, uh, management will try to delay it as long as they can. If those people get moved to those teams, those positions will probably be eliminated within six months to a year. 
And then you don't have to worry about a union anymore because there's no more QA department. Can't have a QA to union if there's no QA department. Ta-da! Yeah, dark times. But it's it's Playbook 101. Uh, I mean, yeah, like Joe said, this is Playbook 101. This is... I mean, I'm seeing a lot of people surprised and a lot of people crying out about this. Like, how could they... You know, how can Blizzard engage in this... How can Activision Blizzard engage in such union-busting activity? And it's like, this is 101. Any corporation is going to kick and scream and do all the fighting it can possibly do to avoid unionization. They will do anything Mm -hmm. to make this stop. Anything. And I mean, a lot of people are looking at Microsoft as the big hope for Activision Blizzard, but even Microsoft has engaged in anti-union behavior. A very similar situation happened at Microsoft where a small team of contract-based QA employees, I'm sorry, employees is the wrong word. Uh, It was a small team of contractors working Mm -hmm. in QA decided to unionize. And within about a year, none of them had jobs anymore. That's That's just par for the course. And I think it is very likely that none of these Raven QA people will have jobs within a year. And that is sad, but that's not unexpected. Businesses hold all the power here. Well, businesses. It's also because uh, to a lot of them, and I don't think people realize this, the largest overhead cost that a company has on anything that just is a, a line of, of paper, right? Like that's just literally just here's where our cost goes is personnel. And that seems like that would be what they want to put their money into. But that's not. That's why they're so keen on automa- uh, automation. That's why they're so keen on machine learning. That's so keen why they're, they're on these things that try to eliminate the people, because that's the easiest thing for them to control. They can't control the costs of processors. They can't control the, pro- the cost of licensing or electricity or rent, um, but they can control how much they pay their people. And when they're beholden to a board of uh, of directors and stock and shareholders, they need to they need to maximize profit for those people. That's their only goal. Of course, they're going to do stuff like try to union bust so that they don't have to re- have higher wages or eliminate positions so they can recap that cost. And it's very counterintuitive for those of us that actually work in the trenches, but to everybody else above it that looks at it, some people just look at it as dollars and cents. And it's why am I spending $8 million a year on personnel when I can spend $6 million a year on personnel? We can save $2 million a year. And I'm, I'm just making up numbers, but it's it's sad. It really is. And it's just companies, businesses hold all the power here. If they do something wrong here, it's very difficult for employees to prove it. And yeah. uh, th- if they if they can prove it, they get a slap on the wrist. And the employees are the ones who are not going to get what they deserve. Yeah. It is hard for them to move forward. And the employer has a lot of power here. Well, it is technically illegal to fire people for attempting to unionize. Uh you can fire people. I you can, mean, in- you can restructure. There's nothing against it. So like that, that's the, that's the loophole, right? If you restructure and those positions are no longer needed, then you're not firing somebody. You're getting rid of the position. And the way that the court system or- looks at it is eliminating the position is not the same as firing somebody. Mm. Well, or you just, of- you just come up with a reason to fire someone for cause, you know, all of a sudden these people are getting really bad performance reviews and they have, and their jobs are getting cut. And it's hard to prove that it's not that. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also one other thing to keep in mind. This is a Q&A department trying to form a union. It's not the entirety of Raven Software or mm-hmm. the entirety of Activision Blizzard. It's when, when Liz is talking about the company has all the power, actually the company has almost no power. But 
they've convinced us that they have all the power. And that conception, that perception is reality because people are not realizing what they have to do. Uh, if you are in a situation like this, having a few Q&A employees or even all the Q&A employees go on strike and form a union, as Joe and Liz have already said, they'll get fired. If the 30, entire company people in this case, yeah, by the way, 34 people. If, yeah. If the entire company unionizes, then what do you do? You cannot fire all 9,000 Activision Blizzard employees. That's you can fire subsets of them. So they'll do anything in their power to keep their people from unionizing so they never have to deal with that. If you can keep them fractured, yes, if you can keep it. them separate, if you can keep them so they don't understand their collective power. And keep them afraid the, of, as yeah. well. Because that, and that's the American system in a nutshell, isn't it? You you make sure that they don't have health care. You make sure that they that everything they get, they get from the company and so that they can lose it. If the company decides they should lose it. And if it, they're living paycheck to paycheck yeah. and they can't they can't yeah. support their bills, how can they afford to lose their job? To, to go back to a thing from a Simpsons episode from 30 years ago, when Homer's constant thing about Lisa needs braces, dental plan, Lisa needs braces. That's not a joke, really. It's actually what happens to people. Your contract is up and you're having to negotiate, well, you can take a pay cut or, you know, now we're not going to provide coverage for this thing. This is... All of this comes down to the fact that the company is aware it has to keep its employees afraid. Yep. Because if they don't, if they're not afraid, and that's what this entire great resignation of the past two years has been all about. It's been about people realizing, hey, I don't have to take this. It's it's getting and so bad that companies are actually starting to try to refuse to accept resignation letters. Or letters. They have done so. There's yep. a court case right now where people left a hospital. Because they were not being paid properly and they took a job in another hospital and the hospital went to court and got an injunction not, so that the other place couldn't hire them. Mm-hmm. That The injunction the injunction got knocked. Yeah, but they still went and walked into yeah. a court yeah. and did it. Can you mm-hmm. imagine that? This, these people who, who tell you they can fire you at will for anything, if you then go, okay, leave and take a job somewhere else, they'll go to court to stop you. Or and I'm they seeing can get away with it. Bosses are just literally calling people, where are you? Why aren't you showing up to work? And it's like, I quit two weeks ago. I'm not coming back to work. <laughs> I literally put my resignation in. You processed it. Well, I need you. Too bad. Like, this is happening a lot. <laughs> yeah. And and it is basically, you know, they're unwilling to pay people what they're worth. And they want they don't want people to understand the power they actually have. Yeah. So what's ultimately going to happen here is, yet again, these union-busting tactics will be successful, kicking the can down the road and eventually forcing a full-on unionization of the entire company or the entire industry, or the company will disintegrate. And that could absolutely happen. Raven could just go away. You know, There's no reason, especially once Microsoft owns Activision Blizzard, there's no reason Raven could just be gone. So that, and again, Liz, you pointed this out already. When, when Liz said this, this is absolutely true. Microsoft is not the hero here. Microsoft got rid of an entire Q&A department because they were contractors. They they dismantled it in like like seconds when they unionized. So they won their union fight, they got a union in, and then they were gone. They they treat, you know, the New York Times wrote an article treating unionization like a disease. Yeah. They actually called it the you know, is your company coming down with this? Was that with resignitis? It's like, dude, you do you, you understand that you you're, you're feeding this idea that the employees are a disease and they do because that's how they see it. Well, if, I mean, if this spreads, then, oh, oh no, we better amputate it. 
And that's not a surprise from the New York Times, which is a publicly traded company and has been since the yeah. 1890s, right? Yeah, absolutely. And make money hand over fist. Of course, they're going to talk about it. They're, they're getting fat off this as well. So, yeah. Um, final thoughts on it from either one of you before we go? We're going to see a lot more turmoil and upheaval in the coming future than I think we haven't, that most people have anticipated. But I also think it's something that's been coming in. Yeah. I mean, Liz, you, I think you had uh, somebody write a post saying that they had to unionize two years ago, right? 2019? Uh, I do not recall. I don't remember what I ate for breakfast yesterday. You want okay. me to remember a post <laughs> from 2019? I remember it because I looked it up and put it in the uh, the Raven <laughs> software article. So I'm sorry. that it, You're right. That was me. I should Because, <laughs> I mean, let's be, people have come to a guy, wow, you wrote this Warrior article. I'm like, I did? Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. I used to do that. Okay. Sorry, but yeah, no, so, but do you have anything final to say on this subject before we move on? I mean, I think you were saying that companies don't hold the power, but I think, I still think they do because of the healthcare thing, because many Americans live paycheck to paycheck, because statistically, the majority of Americans could not put their hands on $500 to pay off an emergency bill. We are all living paycheck to paycheck. We do not have savings. We do not have a safety net. If we get fired, we don't have health care. We don't have money. We mm-hmm. can't pay our rent. We end up out on the streets and companies know that. They know that. Yes, and they hold that over us. And that gives them a lot of power because people want a roof over their heads. They want to be able to afford groceries. They want to be able to send their kids to school. And that is all of the safety that American workers do not have without having a job. And Activision Blizzard doesn't have to fire everyone. They just just have to to fire enough people to tell the rest of them, know your place. Yep. And it's industry-wide. So the worst part is that, you know, once you get, quote unquote, blacklisted as a troublemaker you're basically done it's not even that industry you try to move outside of that industry too like ceos hrs they all talk to each other they all know each other doesn't matter what industry they are as long as they have that title they they communicate like it's a it's a thing this is why i was getting texts from people that aren't even in the game industry uh with the breaking news of of microsoft doing the acquisition right like they're they have no pony in that race and yet they're still on board with it. They're still interested and they're still watching and they still know some of the people involved. It's yeah, it's, it's more than industry. Why it's late stage capitalism at its best quote unquote. Yep. So, uh, all that aside, now we've, we've talked about that and that's, that's something that we'll be have to watch and see how it happens. Personally, the, in my opinion, the best case scenario is an, is a company wide strike. Um, but we'll see what happens. I don't think that's likely, uh, we're going to move on to some questions here. Uh, if you've got a question for the show here at Blizzard Watch, you can send it to podcast at blizzardwatch.com with the subject line podcast at Blizzard Watch uh, so we know it's for the show. And I'm going to stop for a moment and say, guys, please send some some emails in. Uh, we got no emails this week. There was one for Lore Watch. One. Uh, we do three podcasts. It's really helpful if we have a bulk of emails to, to go into. We do like getting them from other things. I, I do take them from direct from DMs on Twitter. I do take them from you know emails we get in other places. But please, if you can send an email to podcast at blizzardwatch.com, please do. It, it helps enormously when it's time to email for the show. However, if you can't do the emails, we, we do always go to our Discord. We have two Discord channels for you asking questions. If you're a patron, you can use the Patron Q and Podcast Questions channel. 
and we look there first because that's that's one of the perks of being a patron. So sign up our Patreon. You know, it's out there. Go ahead, uh, patreon.com slash blizzardwatch. Uh, but if you can't do our Patreon, we also have the Q Questions channel, which I do look in as well. Um, so with no more hemming and hawing, Liz, I want you to read the first question because it is one <laughs> that I picked just because of its subject matter. Go. Uh, who asked this question? Did this question come from someone? Yeah, it's a, it's a direct message from a friend of mine. Uh, that happens <laughs> a lot. I, I say friend of mine. It's somebody I know from Twitter. I mean, yeah, that's that's a friend. That's a friend. I'd call that a friend. To the Council of Snow Golems. So Liz seems to like Mass Effect somewhat, and Rossi keeps talking about it lately. So what's your least favorite and most favorite things about the game as a whole, our individual entries in the series? Also, Joe, as a bonus, how is it that I felt like I was playing Mass Effect when I was playing <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy? Uh, Why don't we let Joe answer uh, his first? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Because in a lot of ways, it shares a lot of DNA because it, it, and it's one of the things I really liked about Guardians of the Galaxy. Instead of playing as every character, you played as Star-Lord. You gave commands to your companions. You earned favor with the companions. There were things that you did that unlocked ultimate abilities for your companions uh, that made the game really collaborative and fun. And then you had things where you can combine uh, powers and effects, essentially, to do massive amounts of damage. It was essentially Marvel's Mass Effect game. Uh, like, it really was, including, like, the choices and uh, stuff like that. Like, it... it and I mean, I enjoyed it and it felt a lot like playing Mass Effect just with a different skin. And there's nothing wrong with that. It was absolutely a blast to play. So, yeah, that's why you felt like it. OK, now on to the Mass Effect. You can answer the next part, too, if you want. If you have least and most favorite things, go for it, Joe. But um, I'm going to say Liz should go first. I think my least favorite thing throughout the games is how uh, difficult it is to compare combat abilities and armor and weapons like they seem to intentionally obfuscate this stuff. In Mass Effect 1, it was all of your details about your armor and your weapons were in your inventory when you equipped things. In Mass Effect 2, all of the weapons literally did not list any kind of damage in the game. They had a text-based description. And to see how much damage they did or how well they worked, you had to equip them and run a mission <laughs> and see how they did. There was like nothing that gave you any information on them. And in Mass Effect 3, it's like you have good, like you have comparative information about like, okay, this one is better than this, this, this one is better at this one at that. But uh, like, to but they work in such different ways sometimes that to test them out, you have to go to like a shooting range, which only exists in one place, which is not on your ship. And if you go to the shooting range to test things out, you can switch between weapons, but you can't switch between armor sets to, like, see how things might interact. So if you want to test out your weapons, you go to the shooting range on the Citadel, and then if you decide, okay, I want to test out my weapons with this different armor set with these different bonuses, then you have to go back to your ship, equip your different armor, and then you go back to the Citadel and go to the shooting range, and it's a whole process. This seems like a really simple video game thing where you can equip gear and see how good or bad your gear is. And it's like, why is this so complicated? Wasn't it's Andromeda even worse, though? Because um, it's even harder to figure out what your stuff does because you can only do yeah. it. You can't just do it in your inventory. You have to go to like a workbench to do it. Uh, Yeah. But well, I mean, Mass Effect 3 was the same in ways. You had to go to a workbench to see. 
Um, Andromeda is indeed worse, but it's it's worse in a very similar way to Mass Effect 3. Like, it's just, it's so clunky, and it's like, this is an RPG shooter, and I want to know how to shoot things good. Yeah. Um, and you are, and the the way to know that is to go to a wiki that lists weapon damage. Yeah. So it's it's ridiculous. It's like it's not even an in-game data file or nothing. It's straight up uh, yeah. go to the Mass Effect wiki. Yeah, <laughs> should, I mean there should be a browser to the Mass Effect wiki in the game cuz at least then I wouldn't have to leave the game for it. No, I agree with you. Uh yeah, yeah, it's just why is this so complicated? It seems like so many games have streamed like this and it's like why is it so complicated here even in your newest games? So anything favorite? Uh, well, favorite thing is definitely uh, the the social interactions. I loved Mass Effect Three, how characters like wandered around the ship and they had conversations between themselves that you could just go and listen to. And Andromeda is similar because characters wander around without you and they have conversations between each other. It feels like a real living world, regardless of what you do. There's stuff going on. Um, you know what else I then, liked in, in Andromeda huh. that's in the same yeah. thing? Uh, mm -hmm. the, the Nomad. When you're riding the Nomad with two people. <laughs> the Nomad itself is terrible. I'm not saying that it's good yeah, to ride horrible, the Nomad. Horrible. But when you're riding the Nomad, say with Javik and, PV, and PB, and PB starts giving the Javik the business, and he's deadpan and responding to everything. And it's like you, you different characters have different conversations while you're driving. And I remember at one point I was playing Sarah Ryder, and she was like, I will turn this thing around. <laughs> she stresses, I, I will stop this nomad. I will turn it around. Both of you stop it. So I, I do like that. So yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing on that. And one of the things I really enjoy about Andromeda is that even these like little side characters have like interesting dialogue and unique stories. Like even the most random character you can talk to has some unique reason they're there. And they have, you know, a couple of sentences of backstory or something they'll talk to you about that is totally unique and non-generic. And someone put a lot of thought into that. And I appreciate it. Whoever, whoever did all of these little random NPCs that have like a half dozen lines of dialogue that give them a little backstory, I appreciate you and all of your hard work. I think that's really cool. Okay, Joe, do you want to respond to this question? Uh, I honestly don't remember enough to really say what I love or hate about Mass Effect. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Wow. I just didn't know if you, you wanted the, to respond. The, the re, the, you the aren't going to... Go ahead. You aren't going to join us in our massive Mass Effect replay that we've we'll been keep doing, doing collectively this, over here? We I've will. been busy we playing will. other games. I've been sucked into Dead Cells <laughs> for the last two weeks. So, like, I mean, so I yeah, haven't actually, had time. I will. I will let you talk about that at some point because I've actually started playing it a little bit. But anyway, since since you're not doing this, I'll, I'll jump in here. Um, for me, least favorite, it depends on the game. So I'm going to actually break it down a little bit here, but we're not going to take a ton of time. Least favorite thing in Mass Effect 1 is biotics because each individual biotic power has a long and varied cooldown, and I can never figure out which one has the longest one or how to use them properly. So I end up like throwing out singularity and like then that's gone forever like i will not be using that again and there's no combo detonations there's none of the cool stuff that i i liked in later games for biotics um my favorite thing in mass effect one is just straight up getting to that moment there's, there's some moments in mass effect that are just ridiculously ahead of their time in terms of like how they amp up the tension like eden prime the first time you run through eden prime it, it has like cutscenes 
that cut to somebody else and stuff happens. And like, one always comes to mind is when, when Saren shoots Nihilus in the back of the head, you hear the gunshot from the perspective of commander Shepard running up the hill. You don't see the gunshot as part of the cutscene. You hear it as commander Shepard and you, the player know what just happened, but you also know that Shepard doesn't. And it's just really well done. And they did that over and over again. The whole bit, uh, going to like you know the various worlds like Novaria and Pharos, that's all great. But it's dropping on Ilos, that that argument before Joker's like, I can do it. And Shepard just goes, suit up, we're doing it. I just really like the 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 really tense action movie feel of Mass Effect One. Uh Mass Effect Two, I think my least favorite thing is simply Cerberus itself. <laughs> I don't like them. I think that the crew of your ship is good. I have this theory, and I'll bounce it off Liz. I have this theory that the the elusive man was was deliberately was aware he was indoctrinated on some level, and created the whole Lazarus project and and everything involved in it to give Shepard the impetus to betray him because he knew he needed. That's why he didn't put a chip in Shepard's head to control them. That's why he set yeah, up the Normandy. Go ahead. That's a really interesting idea because. Um... We know that the elusive man is highly, highly intelligent, and we know he's also messing around with Reaper Tech. He's implanting Reaper Tech in his head, uh, and he's smart enough to know the risks and to understand this. And so maybe, I mean, maybe he was sub subconsciously setting Shepard up for success, despite you know heading down this other path because yeah. he has, like, he's pretty supportive of Shepard throughout Mass Effect Two, kind well of. He's kind of weird about it. He's kind of like, well, I respect your decision, even though I disagree with it. But yeah, he generally strange. he generally respects what Shepard does. Yeah, and, and, and it's two, to the point where, yeah, and two, he even says, like, one point you actually talked to Miranda, Miranda's like, well, I would have put a chip in your head to control you, but he said we could not do that. And then you look at the the Normandy crew. The Normandy crew is like Cerberus's most apple-cheeked, rosy people possible. <laughs> For an organization that commits terrorist activity on the regular, all of these people are like, so it's so good to meet you, Commander. We're we really looking forward to defending, you know, it's like, who, where did he get you? Like, none of you worked in the Thorian, like, lab, I'm assuming. None of you people well, were, like, do, working in the, you know, implant people with Reprotect to see what they do lab, because you're all <laughs> bloody delightful. I mean, what is going on here? So that's, that yeah, is that's, actually that is actually mentioned in Mass Effect Three that he did he specifically got friendly faces to put on the Normandy to make Shepard trust him. Yeah, I figured, but I think that the whole thing the whole thing is a charm offensive from beginning yeah, to end. Yeah, right down to he recruits the engineers that left the Alliance because the Alliance didn't do enough to defend Commander Shepard's honor after they died. You know, like he was, this was definitely a charm offensive, but I think it was all for the purpose of eventually these were people who would be susceptible to Shepard's unique brand of do what I want, not what they want. Because that you, that's Shepard's whole character established throughout the three games is he somehow manages to talk people like he talks the original Normandy crew into mutiny, the whole crew. None of them argue <laughs> with this. Even Presley, who is like, you know, borderline space racist himself, is like, yeah, we should totally mutiny that because you, uh, an alien probe told you to. I'm down with this idea, Commander. They all do it. It's so, yeah. But that's, that's one of the things I love about Mass Effect 2. I, I think that's really good at, at doing that. Um, as for the final game, I'm never going to be happy with the ending, but what I really dislike is the space baby. Like, why is this kid... We don't need a metaphoric <laughs> kid to, to show up and be unhappy that he died. 
and, and it doesn't like Shepard should be upset because Shepard has been through a lot, but I, I just never bought this weird dream manifestation of Shepard's PTSD. I, I do believe Shepard would have PTSD at this point because it's been rough. Um, having constantly been the person arguing, listen to me, they're coming. You have to do what I'm telling you. And having the council refuse over and over again, despite overwhelming evidence that Shepard is right. Literally a Reaper flew into the Citadel and that wasn't good enough. And I used to think that that was too much until COVID. Now I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, no, that is how people gotcha. All right. But yeah, that's, so that's my, my least favorite. It's the space baby as the metaphor, but I love the combat system in, in Mass Effect and I love the characters. I think Mass Effect 3 is up until a certain point, Mass Effect 3 is my favorite Mass Effect game. Because uh, I think it, it, it combines a lot of the stuff I liked about Mass Effect 1 with a lot of the stuff I combined about Mass Effect 2. Andromeda, I like that it's just frenetic as heck. It's the combat system in, in, in Andromeda is bouncy. Like oh, you can yeah. bounce. Like your character has some kind of augmented jumping ability. It's, it's fun. And all the abiotics. I don't like the profile thing. You know what I mean? Like, like now I'm a vanguard. Now I'm an adept. Now I'm a soldier. No, I, I just want to pick one. I like classes in Mass Effect. I like making a choice. I like when someone plays an Elcor soldier in a role-playing game, because that was really cool. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's it for me. Do you think we can do another story, another question, you think? Because we've only done this one, and the show's almost over. Wow, how did that happen? I mean, I, slow, I, slow news day, that's all. I think the Raven Q&A <laughs> question took a lot <laughs> of time. Slow news day. But yeah, uh, Joe, do you mind reading sure. the next one? Uh, this one comes our, from our friend Lord Soth. Uh, I, Lord Soth, have recently returned from a severe dive into the world of Hades by Supergiant Games. I know Matt is quite knowledgeable about various mythologies and not sure about Joe and Liz's background on the subject. I was curious about your take on how accurate, inaccurate you think the game characterizations of the various gods, heroes, and villains are. Also, feel free to just talk about Greek mythology if you should feel so inclined. Thanks. I'll be right up front with you, man. Hades very deliberately didn't pay. It's not that they didn't pay attention. They know what they're doing. They but use the absolutely root. all these characters are personality-wise completely inaccurate from any of the original mythological sources, mm-hmm. which are themselves fragmentary. Because we could get into a whole thing here about the origins of Greek mythology and the origins of the way we get those myths, because. We only get them from a few classical writers who were writing down stuff that other people wrote before them. And a lot of the, the stuff that we would have provided us with context was destroyed in various wars and the fire at the Library of Alexandria. But in terms of what we have for, for those myths, Hades is deliberately tweaking and playing around with the personalities of the characters for the effect of the game. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, Zeus was not like that. <laughs> but Zeus, I mean... Go play Immortals Phoenix Rising and, and you'll see Chatty Zeus. And it's like, you know, it's for a reason. It's for effect. They know the myths. Uh, the Zagreus is a deep cut in the it first It's a very, place. very deep cut. Um, sometimes Actual son of Hades. Yeah. Uh, and he's not always the son of Hades in some myths. That's true. Sometimes he's the son of Zeus. And sometimes Zagreus dies and becomes Dionysos. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a lot of complications here. One thing about Greek mythology, and I will then shut up and let Joe and, and Liz talk about it. One thing about Greek mythology that's always interesting is that, do you know that both Hades and Zeus don't actually exist, or at least didn't exist when the original Greek uh, ancestors settled in the Greek peninsula? The, the, the in linear B, the, the Mycenaean deity who becomes Poseidon, Potawedon, is in, in the linear B script, is the only god they have. 
Zeus is just a corruption of the word that also becomes Deus in Latin. Mm-hmm. It just means God. It's a title. His name would have been like Deus Potawedon. And then it became Zeus. It became a different character. Hades means Aedos, hidden. It was like the hidden face of the god when he was dealing with the land of the dead. Because Hades is a Jethonic entity, and so is Poseidon, god of earthquakes, earthshaker. Well, when He's the, also um... the god of the deep earth. As their, as their mythology progressed, they became three separate deities as, as time passed. But if you went to Arcadia during the classical period, and the multiple Greek writers, including Herodotus, wrote about this, in Arcadia, they still had the myth of Poseidon as a horse, as king of the gods, who married Demeter and had a child. Whereas in other myths of, obviously, Demeter's daughter, uh, Kore, or Persephone, was the daughter of Zeus, because Zeus became his own god. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, now I'm going to let Joe and Liz talk. Liz, do you want to talk before Joe does? Because I know Joe can go. I uh, no, Joe. I haven't <laughs> actually played Hades. Uh, what's interesting to me though, is Hades is just another evolution, right? It's not, when you talk about Greek mythology, it's really hard to talk about accuracy because it's one of those things where ancient civilizations have been their sort of theology. While we think of it as well-preserved has definitely shifted over time. Like going with what Matt said, the original like Greek gods, the primordial gods, what they had were, didn't have anything to do with, uh, you know, Hades. It didn't have anything to do with, uh, Zeus. In fact, if I remember correctly, they were simply based around concepts uh, like the four elements. Uh, of course, them was earth, air, sky, and sea, uh, but also fresh water. There was darkness. There was night. There was light. There was day. There was Verily at the first, chaos came to be, and darkest night, Erebus yep. burst from her her bosom, and she gave she gave rise to form and production. This is from Hesiod's uh, Theogony, yes. which is itself. Hesiod wrote at the same time as Homer. So both Homer and Hesiod are much earlier Mm -hmm. than the Greek classical period. And they are pretty much our only source for what the Mycenaeans actually believed, but they're heavily changed. You know, they're, they're late, like AD, they're BC 800, which means they are 400 years after the Mycenaean civilization fell. So yeah, there's, there's tons of stuff we don't understand. It's half remembered. It's written down in one myth and yet a different myth completely contradicts it. Hades doesn't do anything that hasn't been done in mythology for literally the entire time that that religion was pat was practiced. But it, I th- it just all that to say that I think they do a, a decent job of capturing some of the more modern sensibilities of what we think of when we comes to Greek mm-hmm. mythology. Oh, so I think they do a wonderful job. Hades is job. extremely well written. Very much. It's, so. it's the dialogue is is fresh. It doesn't feel stilted at all. Uh, and there is they capture Zagreus's desire to do something that is not possible. Logan Cunningham does an amazing job with it. I'm just going to throw it out there. It it is. The writing is top notch and it is it in, in a way it's very much along the same lines as classical plays like um, Oedipus Rex or um, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the mythical legendarium around Orpheus, the idea that Orpheus descends into hell to get back uh, his, you know, Eurydice and is told, don't turn around and you, you, you can take her, but you can't turn around. If you turn around to look to make sure she's there, then it's, then it's over because Hades knows no one could do that. There's no way that a human could trust that much. And th- that's the kind of thing you see in Hades. That's the kind of the way he does the whole thing with Persephone, that all of it, it's really well done. It, it plays around with, with classical myth and classical literature in, in a fun, 
fascinating one. Yeah. And I think that's really the best takeaway for it. Like, don't don't look for it to accuracy. Look for it like they just they took the seeds and developed it into its own thing, which is yeah. really accuracy a and accuracy when talking about Greek mythology is suspect at best. No. Yeah, no, there's <laughs> the, the myths contradict each other regularly. Like there's there's myths like about there's a myth about how Artemis was this virgin goddess who didn't like have any, con- you know, and at the same time, there's the whole thing with the, the hunter Orion and how she kills him and it turns one guy into, into a, a deer. So his own hounds eat him uh, was, was a bear at one point who had Zeus's children, but later of course, Zeus is her father. That's the myths changed as each new person used them. Yep. And so, yeah, it, it, Hades does an amazing job of, of using them for its purposes. I don't, I'm not good at playing Hades at all. <laughs> like I'm terrible at it. I've, I've died so much. And I never get anywhere. I, I literally streamed when the game first came out in early access. Cause I was a day one uh, supporter of it. Cause it was super giant games and an action RPG based around the idea of Greek mythology. Of course I was going to throw down for it. Um, <laughs> it literally took me a almost a year to get my first victory. I am not very good at it, but I love that game. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's. I play it with God mode enabled, so that every time I die, I get like more health, so I can try and figure out why I died. And yeah, I. By the way, that's a completely separate thing, but that is a great difficulty mode. Yes. Uh, all right, I guess that wraps us up, though. So, Joe. Yep, that'll do us. Uh, so thank you very much, folks. Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash Blizzard Watch. Your continued support means this podcast signing community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. Thank you, Joe. Uh, before we do the final outro, I want to mention that we're doing a wild, the, the Witchlight game is this Saturday? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, we're playing Wild Beyond the Witchlight this Saturday at 2.30 p.m. Central, which should be interesting. Hey, we haven't played in like over a month, and we left yeah. on a kind of a cliffhanger-y thing. So, yeah, Very tense cliffhanger-y thing. Yep. So this has I, been the Blizzard. Oh, go ahead. I, I do have one thing I want to sneak in at the end. Sure, go uh, for it. Which is that we, our anniversary, our six-year anniversary is coming up on the 1st of February. Yeah. Isn't that crazy to think about best hold on I, I just i just felt all my bones best best birthday gift i ever got <laughs> all my bones they're so so here <laughs> i have them oh oh lord i can feel them <laughs> yeah okay uh six years yeah <laughs> uh, so yeah it's our anniversary on the first of february and we will have some new merchandise with a brand new phoenix art by Noxichu that we're going to be posting on the 1st of February. So if you like really cool Phoenix art, uh, check back here and it should be live next week. Uh, Hopefully by the time you listen to this podcast. Yep. That's great. Trying so hard not to be like, but we just, oh no, that was six years ago. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it was. I don't know how that happened either. It just happened. Yeah. It happened. But, yeah. Thank you guys. Uh, thank you, Liz, for that. Thank you, Joe, uh, just for everything, for both of you, for everything. It, it's been great <laughs> doing the show with you guys for the, the, the past few months. Oh, my God. I've been doing this for six years. Oh God, I have to get through this in- extra so we can go lie down and, and, and <laughs> like eat some like meat, oatmeal or something. Meatloaf, I was going to say. Oh, <laughs> Lord, you broke me. You broke me, Liz. Thank you. I'm sorry. <laughs> But anyway, this is uh, Blizz- this has been the Blizzard Watch podcast. If you've got a question for the podcast, again, please 
consider emailing it to us at podcast at blizzardwatch.com with the subject line podcast or blizzard watch so we know it's for the show or you can go to our discord channels we've got the Q, the patron q and podcast questions channel for patrons and we've got the q questions channel for non-patrons we will look there for questions as well uh thank you guys so much for being here with us every week uh we're going to be back next week